0: Welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that records all of its episodes from a seaside bungalow in Spain. <laughs> nice and cozy? Ocean breeze is wafting in today, Amanda. Are you feeling it?
1: I wish I really were feeling it.
0: <laughs> well, I think, you know what? I Even the coast of Spain can't get it done sometimes. Pristine sky, pristine ocean, beautiful food, even that's not enough. Good, fresh wine. Is it... Well... Is good wine supposed to be fresh? Old wine. (laughs) Good old fresh wine. Anyway, you know my knowledge of wine just by that little snippet of conversation. Joining me as ever is podcast co-host Amanda. Welcome back, Amanda.
1: Hello.
0: And while we sit by the sea today in Spain, only metaphorically... We are going to be discussing The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. Today is a book club episode, specifically it is the part two book club episode of that novel. We use our book club episodes for analytical deep dives and to discuss the entirety of the work. And so today as we're discussing again the novel The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo, We'll be talking about the whole book, spoilers, the entirety of it. We have now finished the novel, so this is part two of that. If you're looking for part one or just a book recommendation, check the podcast feed. As I already mentioned, we are the Lightly Literary Podcast. Please follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and a Facebook account, both of which are pretty active, with reminders and updates and art and other things. And also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice and tell your friends and family. Again, we're here to discuss this novel, Amanda, which you chose. Why don't we, before we get back into it, briefly remind us why you picked it. The prompt was to pick a novel with a book, not a novel, actually, I think it's just a work, with a number in the title. Um, give us a rundown quick of why you chose this one.
1: Sure. Um, I chose this one because um, I wanted to kind of branch out from what we would normally read, and the only other one that I... Like knew for sure had like a number in it was another Murakami work that we've we've already done Murakami and also that book was like a gazillion pages yes. so... yeah so <laughs> big commitment <laughs> yeah and um, so I went to Goodreads to look up some for some ideas and I stumbled upon this book um, and I read that a lot of people actually really enjoyed it um, and this author a previous book of hers. Um, was a New York Times bestseller. So I was like, well, why don't we do something that's like, she's obviously like, you know, somebody that uh, a lot of people like to read and it's a, yeah. it's a genre that we have not encountered together. So I thought that it would be a fun beach read to kind of analyze.
0: Yeah, it was, it checked a lot of boxes off that we hadn't yet checked. And so this is a new kind of entry into the podcast also. I don't, you know, we're still pretty early in the new pod format, but yeah, it certainly stylistically differs from other things we've done. So let's dig into it. We're assuming by now that if you're with us or sticking around with us for this episode, you too have finished the novel, which I've already mentioned, but bears saying again. We are going to spoil and discuss in full. We'll begin our second book club episode with some highs and lows. Now that we have finished the work, we want to discuss the second half and talk about things that we thought were high moments, things that we thought were low moments. You know, some compliments and some criticisms. Amanda, I'll let you start and I'll let you set the tone. You can begin with a high or a low.
1: Sure. I will start with a low moment, Mm -hmm. Um, which also relates directly to one of my high moments. But I'll just anyway. So the low moment for me was was Monique as a character and just her Mm -hmm. entire narrative. Um, And it's something that I had mentioned actually in the previous episode that I just could not like really get behind and I thought and I hoped that by the end of this novel that it would resolve in a way that would make me more um, interested in Monique and while I am like slightly more interested in Monique by the end because of like the dad I'm actually more interested in her dad and her mom than I am in Monique now that I think about it um, as characters but
0: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: and she's just not she's not fleshed out enough, and I and I'm still not really sold on her as necessary to this novel. I think that if this novel had cut out that entire narrative and instead had made this into like some kind of like fake memoir or some kind of like diary or scrapbook, I would be just as interested in in that format as mm-hmm. as yeah. this weird frame story
0: yeah we can imagine all kinds of other ways this could have been written through letters she clearly liked to write letters so we could have done it that way so it could have been what is that called an epistolary story i think something like that Mm -hmm. it could have just been a straight up third person narrative of this woman's life i agree with you and it would have lost almost nothing both of my low moments related to the frame narrative so i suppose i'll just jump into and we'll go with our low moments first Okay, so let's start uh, let's start with the quieter or maybe subtler thing that I want to just talk about is kind of a low. We do finally get some actual details of Monique's life instead of summaries of it in the back half. Specifically, we do meet her ex-fiancé David who shows up in a scene But it's just a scene of such false tension and false conflict. It it felt quite literally like a a narrative contrivance just to get her to reference Don and Evelyn and all of Evelyn's stories into her life. It felt like such a bland and explicit way to let Evelyn's lessons permeate her life. At some point, it says something like... It says something about, you are never my other half. And then it says, you know, David says, I hope one day you find someone who makes you who feels like the other half of you, I guess, David says. And then her, inside her head, like Celia. And then, so that's one connection back to Evelyn's story. And then, you know, she says something like, why until this moment did I realize that the issue is my own confidence? That the root of my, of most of my problems is that I need to be secure enough in who I am to tell anyone who doesn't like it to go fuck themselves. Why have I spent so long settling for less when I know damn well the world expects more? Where do we see those expectations? She was given false praise in the first half by Evelyn for being a great interviewer, but then bungling it horribly and not showing any actual demonstrating any actual interview skills. Like she's not even in the narrative. She just show it just shows up and they chat lightly, and then they you know steal or um, Evelyn just talks to to all the ends. I don't. There's just so many things unearned about this. We don't really know anything about David. Except that he wanted to move for work, wanted her to go with him, and now he regrets it. And now he, you know, wants to reconcile or something. But and so that the paragraph, you know, a nice little f bomb there for a little bit of voice and punch. But talk about unearned. I don't. Who, who doesn't have confidence? Her boss even shows confidence in her. Her boss even at the beginning when they had that little conflict. She even says, you know, you're you're still a starting writer here, but we believe in you. You know, we don't want you to get taken advantage of. We want the story. Even that didn't feel like her boss looking down on her. It felt like her boss wanting to give it to one of the more senior staff at the newspaper or at the magazine. So there's I just don't I didn't feel any of that when she said it. I believe that it's true, but it's a life in summary and not a life in details. And so I'm just left to shrug at this.
1: Yeah, and <clears throat> I agree. And even when you look at the the very last piece that we see in this novel is a piece written by Monique about interviewing Evelyn Hugo. And I was like, you could totally cut that final piece out and end with the the New York Tribune piece, which would have made it like very nicely cyclical in that the first piece that we see is the New York Tribune piece about evelyn hugo donating to charity all her clothes and then the last piece could be the new york tribune piece where they're announcing her death where there was an accidental overdose and it would be great like that would be okay nice but then we have the monique piece at the end where she's like summarizing essentially the story of like oh yeah check out my book because she was bisexual like i was just like why is this here we already as a reader know that like what I don't understand. (laughs) Well, to me,
0: yes. To me, it did read... And I know we enjoyed the snippets from other works throughout the book. It just added a little bit of flavor. But by that point in the story, it read to me... I got to a point with the other excerpts from other things whether it was the gossip magazines or in this case the preview of the magazine piece it just is summarizing the story to you again the reader it doesn't right. I don't feel like it added much I suppose in that last one we're supposed to see some of the confidence that Monique's writing voice was supposed to have which we never really get a snippet of it's another thing we're just told instead of right. we, we don't get to explore it or show it or anything we're just told oh she did write a great piece that happened and so I guess right. that's the opportunity for us to get that to feel that confidence in her, I didn't feel it. I don't know. It just felt like a summary of something I just read.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's maybe if she had provided some snippets of like her great, amazing work that made Evelyn like find her, not just as a journalist, um, not just as somebody who she had to reveal information about her pre her father, but as a journalist. But we don't even yeah. get any of that writing sample. So like this final piece where we get her writing sample i'm like is this the amazing journalist that we're supposed to be like oh my gosh yeah she definitely deserved it i don't
0: it's definitely not enough to render any judgment i think we're just meant to given how the story wraps up which we can now talk about given how it all comes together i think we're just meant to believe that this did push monique or this is kind of her gateway to greatness or something or some broader fame Who knows what it would really end up being, but that, yeah, I think we're just meant to take it, you know, just take it right. That's how the story was clearly put together. It doesn't have to mean it's satisfying, you know, or that it's even interesting, but I, the other low moment I think ties into this a bit because it is the entire plot twist at the end (laughs) that the man who Harry killed and then Evelyn helped frame was her father. And so, I have so many reactions to this. We knew that the narratives had to come together explicitly because there was blunt force foreshadowing about it the entire book. And at some point, yeah. Evelyn really started to get ominous about it. It felt like every time we got the frame narrative in the back half of the novel, she said much more ominous and eerie things about the <laughs> about what was going to be revealed. And so at some point, of course, these had to come together. I thought that already felt contrived and a bit excessive, And especially given my coldness toward the frame, having that harsh of a revelation be the thing felt way over the top for me. Total mellow, not even melodrama, beyond that, some kind of soap operatic thing to me. But the the thing that then kicked that up somehow even more was the perfectly constructed, perfectly thematically cogent note that she peeled off of a dead man's body when she was framing him. I at that point I was like, okay, this is <laughs> this has gone so far beyond anything sensible. It is trying to put bow ties on all these thematic things. And it is becoming I mean it's in science fiction we like the Ducec Ducex Machina term, this Latin term that just means you justify your own ending out of nowhere kind of you know you create a a false narrative construction to allow you to just get out of something and just wrap up your story but this was that to a level that i had not seen outside of really bad sci-fi kind of genre storytelling and it was done within you know a very realistic historical work i have what is your simple reaction to the ending if you have a simple reaction
1: (laughs) so the big reveal um like, that is the one piece that, like, made me, like, kind of interested in Monique. But then her... <sighs> so, Evelyn had told her, like, from the beginning, like, you're going to hate me by the end of this. And she reveals, before she reveals that the man is her father, was her father, she, re- you know, she talks about how she framed an innocent man to to, to be the one to take the fall for um, Harry. Uh, but yeah, he... Yeah. She Monique's reaction is just like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of bad or whatever. But but it only turns to like real like disgust at Evelyn when she finds out it's her own father. Right. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like, eh, Yeah, there's a line
0: in there when she describes the act in that intense narrative way that she does it. And because it's all framed through that clippy, I remember, I remember repetition. Yeah. But and there's a line in there when when the frame comes back, Monique says, I'm not sure I wouldn't do the same thing for someone I loved. And so kind right. of, I guess not only framing someone for something that should have been a manslaughter case, but also then bribing someone to keep quiet about it. There were many federal crimes committed in a row there in <laughs> in pretty <laughs> rapid succession by Evelyn, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I d- yeah. I, of course, it was intriguing in that it there's other. But again, this all feels to me in the amount of runway it was given unearned. Of course, it had to be another LGBTQ plus conflict or narrative to it. And another romance that was complicated. And of course, not so great or not so black and white that. There was love between her parents, but perhaps not the real kind uh, or not real. Of course, it was real, not the passionate kind. And so it, it thematically, again, it all just felt too simplistic thematically to me to be like, of course, it has to hit that. Of course, it's the same thing. Of course, it like it all just felt like, of course, but in, done in the most preposterous way. And also, again, who's the, that he had that he had the note on him at that moment and that she took it. I again just defies any kind of even basic plot sense to me of any sort I don't understand it just felt so ludicrous and so can so ludicrously convenient to me um
1: yeah it was also like thematically like yeah it fits with the overall like the minority narrative that she's going for but the thing is is it (laughs) it already we already see that idea of like platonic love where you have a soulmate that's not necessarily like a yeah a Harry. passionate love with Harry and Evelyn yeah, we don't need yeah. to see it yet again in another couple like it was i mm-hmm. think unnecessary and if she wanted to have that additional twist then instead of having the Monique narrative which just is like you know really flat to me she could have Had Evelyn go to the other person's funeral and seen and met the wife and child in that way, right? Like you could have that same twist or whatever. Mm -hmm, Yeah. But and to show maybe that it's not just celebrities that it happens to, but you know people everywhere or whatever the purpose would be. But
0: Mm -hmm, yeah,
1: yeah, it's just uh, I don't know the the whole. But then you wouldn't
0: fall. Well, then you wouldn't fall into, because I, in the first part of this book club, we, or not we, I touched upon how this book was reminding me of some, in my limited exposure to rom-coms of which I watch, you know, a few a year, this was hitting a lot of the tropes to me of those story lines, at least the really popular ones, and this just felt like such a way of, I mean, the whole purpose of this frame, or the whole, I don't know, there was no way this frame was going to end negatively for Monique, or at least... Not in the literal sense in terms of financial comfort or family position. You know, she's got a good relationship with her mom. She's more ha- She's I was going to say more happy. She's happier about her marriage now or the d- impending divorce. All of that stuff, is it all works out for her kind. And then, you know, of course, even the revelation with her father... While really brutal, in the end, it's the note is only such a revelation of his depth of love as Evelyn so you know blatantly points out to her. It's none of it emotionally is for the worse. She got more clarity, and you know it's it's of course painful to know that he wasn't quite who you maybe understood him to be. But you know it's just it, this narrative was never going to end. I think imagine a version like you said where Evelyn learns all these revelations. She doesn't even know Monique. She just is deciding whether to reveal these things to these people and and upend this family. That would be such a colder ending and such a more ambiguous one and one that would leave us, I think... I mean, I'm reading Evelyn at the end just almost outright villainously, but I don't think that's what the story intended. I think that's just kind of where my own reading went or where my own reading kind of pushed me because the other thing about this having this plot twist be the final severe major act in the book... Is that it pins? I, I don't know if you're someone like me who is already pretty skeptical of Evelyn's narrative throughout the whole thing. This moment is just—I mean, she has trapped this woman, Monique, in the most horrendous way, and she—and she knows it at the end too. She says something like, "Well, what are you going to burn up it up now? I've offered you know you have this book deal now. I've tried like she has really trapped her. She's trapped her financially, emotionally, in terms of her career movement because of the photo shoot, and so it is one final again, soap operatic, ludicrous and villain-like move by Evelyn to trap this woman in this way, to have manipulated her so deeply and to have this final twist. And, and of course, at that point, given all that she had known, given the she's set all these expectations for her new life and has sort of, you know, has all the, the, again, the book deal, the the promotion, all that stuff, that it's just, I don't know. I, I read it quite harshly as a kind of, and I know Evelyn gets her speech at the end about how there's no good or bad people. Yeah, she's she's one of those complex people. But I just I don't know the whole thing because it went so high and went went so over the top. I think it tipped my reading in the end a bit.
1: I didn't think about the uh, manipulative aspect of the uh, of having Monique do the the piece on her. Of course, you right, Just think of the simpler
0: yeah. option. She she brings this woman in, and firstly, she could have compensated her financially for the loss of her father straight up. She is a millionaire, right. a whatever, a <laughs> And so you can arrange these things. You put her into her will, whatever. I mean, there's also the manipulative part that Monique seems to be inferring at the end that she chose Monique because of that one assisted suicide. And now Evelyn is going to commit suicide. That's what's implied. I guess that's never proven. I well I mm-hmm. suppose it is though. Cause it says she take too many meds, right? She overdosed. Yeah. So I guess that, that sure happens. It Monique reads that correctly. And so isn't that just another form of manipulation that she chose this one person whose big breakout story was about the thing she doesn't want her to, you know, it's it's like she knew who she wanted to tell her story. Again, that's either expert level manipulation or uh, insane plot contrivance to think, you know, this one woman she needed to reveal this great sin to also happened to be the person she needed at this exact moment the exact perfect writer with the right emotional spectrum that she wanted and could, you know, had like shown sympathy toward the exact top. It again, it's either all too convenient or, you know, I, or just some kind of master manipulation. That's at least how I came away feeling about it.
1: Yeah. I guess I, I thought of it as like um, master manipulation as far as like definitely reading that piece and, and using that to her end. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. let's talk through some high moments before we get into the essays. I'll jump in. I know you started off the lows. I'll start off the highs. I think most of Evelyn's character development in the second half and most of those revelations felt, I I don't know, I enjoyed the ride of it, I think. And some of it showed a bit more depth and humanity. And I think the narrative slowed down a bit and let her and Celia focus a bit more on reconciling and stuff. And I think most of those moments just kind of worked. I think we both enjoyed Evelyn's character a lot and the complexity shown through in a lot of ways. I think on 272, I pulled a quote here that I wanted to talk about, and I think it's when she's talking She's talking to Monique about Celia, and it says, Evelyn shrugs slightly. Celia always made me feel the bad outweighed by so much good. I, well, I didn't do it for her. I made it 50-50, which is about the cruelest thing you can do to someone you love. Give them just enough good to make them stick through a hell of a lot of bad. Of course, I realized all this when she left me, and I tried to fix it, but it was too late. As she said, she simply couldn't do it anymore, because it took me too long to figure out what I cared about. Not because of my sexuality. I feel confident you're going to get that right. And quotes like this... Kind of her trying to sum up her life and her deeds, litter the back half, and I think most of them work. But again, I I read a quote like that, and I don't—I think you could read this simply as just, it's giving sympathy for a person whose life was compromised and had to do a lot of, you know, bad stuff to get to the good stuff. But she's literally doing that to Monique right now. She is luring her with all of the good, only to slam her in the face— with the most awful, horrendous <laughs> revelation at the end. And so it's, yeah. she's, she can't stop. She's doing it right now. I mean, the whole frame is her doing that. And so she comes across as enlightened, but isn't the isn't the worst kind of person someone who pretends to be enlightened and then does the opposite of what they're pretending to have overcome? I mean, isn't, you know, it's the person who's aware of their manipulativeness but then continues to do it anyway. I, you know, it's, yeah. you don't blame the five-year-old for doing something awful. You blame the 25-year-old who has been, who should know better, you know? Right. At any rate, I, so I still think that's a high moment just because I ended up, I don't like her character um, in the book club, I don't like this person way, but I thought it was a really interesting character study with with a lot of compromises and complexity to it.
1: Yeah, I agree. That was um, one of my highs as well, it was Evelyn's character, but I also thought, especially compared to like Monique's flat character, um, one mm-hmm. of my highs too was not just Evelyn's character, but also Celia and Harry's characters,
0: mm-hmm, yeah. um,
1: the major players, essentially, of this novel. And I think that she just, uh, Taylor Jenkins Reid, developed those characters really well um, in, in that they also had a lot of complexity to them, too, especially Celia, um, where she's got a lot of confidence, but then she's also insecure in Evelyn's um, sexuality, right? She's not quite secure in the knowledge that Evelyn is bisexual rather than, mm-hmm. than a lesbian and her interest in men and stuff like that. She's still very insecure in that. And I just found that really interesting too. And also Celia has got lots of flaws <laughs> as well. Yeah. Yeah. Her, um, so her sexual that, hangups
0: were, there's yeah. a lot you could unpack in those scenes, I think too. I'm not sure how yeah. you read those, but
1: for sure. Yeah. The, um, it, Everything was just I think that all all the characters I think were really great which made Monique's character just stand out as being like man what <laughs>
0: Uh-huh yeah. Why? <laughs> yeah, did not generate as much interest, depth or sympathy, empathy or anything for me either. Right. Yeah, that's for sure. Any other high <laughs> moments? I've got one more. Do you do you have any others? Things to sit on?
1: Um yeah, I've got I've got another one. Um, the other high moment for me was um, just the the overall like theme and the motifs of the story. I really like the message about like controlling a narrative, controlling what others see and think of you. Yeah. The different types of love, ambition, confidence, and and the complexities of truth uh, and of love. Like I just I really enjoyed. Um, the portrayal of that through the characters. I think that that was really well done. And I just enjoyed reading something about those things, especially like with the, the background setting of it being like the 1960s, 70s, 80s, where we, we kind of find a follow a timeline of, um, LGBTQ plus rights almost um, throughout the novel. So I found that really interesting and I, and I, and I really appreciated that.
0: Some of it, I feel, yeah, I feel quite torn on it because it it really sprinkles those things in. But because the, the story is so, you know, dialogue scene, dialogue scene, and you're just rapid firing through these conversations, when they mention things, they mention conversion therapy, they mention the, the laws being really strict in the 50s. Then in the 60s or 70s, I think they mentioned, I forget the name of it, was it Stonewall riots? I forget the riots exactly, but there's yeah. protests and yeah. riots and violence happening, and that was in New York. They mentioned those, and it all, I mean, you can't say it's name servicey in a narrative this... This intricate and with relationships like these, so I don't. I'm not going to say it's shallow, maybe, or maybe that is kind of what I want to say. That it it's interesting and it generated some thinking in me and, and questioning. But I, I guess I wish it spent more time on those things or dwelt on them more. But it it kind of just felt like it wanted to get back to the personal, the interpersonal and emotional stuff, and kind of put that on the side. Which that you know that's the story. It was it was interpersonal drama. So I you know. That, that just is what it is. I guess I feel neutrally, but I those things are sprinkled throughout, for sure. Yeah. Including the football player, the husband. John,
1: yeah. was it?
0: <laughs> John America, whatever his name was. Yeah,
1: John Braverman, right? Yeah, Braverman, classic. I think it
0: was. Braverman, yeah. yeah. All-American hero. <laughs> and yeah, until the very end, right? I guess if you wanted to do a good, we didn't use this as one of our essays, but if you wanted to look at the idea of narrative and controlling narrative, the final snippet from Monique's magazine piece is a I don't know, that there's a lot you could read into that. Oh yeah. I think my only other high I want to mention briefly is she did kind of flip her narrative voice in the second half again, not to the level of the she never revisited the Mick Riva second person version of it, which I thought still was the most intense and worked well in that scene. But on 327 during the Harry car accident, she flips into the sort of really short and punchy, I remember paragraphs. And so, mm-hmm. you know, she says, In the moment you act without thinking, doing all you can with the information you have, it's when it's over that you scream and cry and wonder how you got through it. Because most likely in the case of real trauma, your brain isn't great at making memories. It's almost as if the camera is on, but no one's recording. So afterward, you go review the tape and it's all but blank. Here's what I remember. And then you know, she says things like, I remember helping pull Harry out. I remember the deep gash in his eyebrow, the way the blood coated half his face and thick red and thick rest red. I remember two of his teeth being in his lap. So it's kind of, it's really kind of brutal, but then there's sweet moments. I remember rocking him back and forth. And anyway, it goes on. That is like a two page thing. So I'm not going to read it all, but I just, it felt, yeah, it was a brutal moment and kind of a turn for the narrative in terms of its kind of harshness. And certainly one of the only really violent scenes in the book. And it just felt, yeah, kind of intense. I felt like slipping into that voice and putting in that structure there lent it a bit of intensity that I felt like it deserved. And, yeah, I'm not sure how you felt about it.
1: Yeah, that scene for sure was was very intense. That's a good word for it. And more descriptive than the rest of the narrative in general, which was Mm -hmm. one of my – the other low that I was going to talk about was – No, go ahead. Yeah, the 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 what she decides to describe like in those scenes like the traumatic scenes, we do get a bit more description of like this is what it looks like, this is what I'm seeing, whereas throughout the rest of the narrative what we the descriptions are not so much about setting or what she sees except for sometimes randomly it seems like there's descriptions of clothes. Of what people are wearing. Yes, yes. But then those clothes don't come back. There's no further discussion of it later. So you're like, what if, What was the relevance of that? Why are you focusing on a paragraph on somebody's clothes? And then there's no other descriptions of like anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what's going on around you. So that, I think, for me, I was, was a low in that I, I still am, am trying to wrap my head around the significance of that. But also just... I guess like I'm not sure with this particular genre whether like describing a setting is like really important to this genre, um, and perhaps it's quite common that there's not a whole lot of imagery and stuff like that. Um, so <laughs> functional be... at best. Right. Yeah, I'm I'm trying not to be overly critical about like. The style that's written here, because I'm not familiar with this genre, and I don't know like whether this is just typical, but um, yeah, like there was one scene on page 165 when they go to that uh, Riva concert. The yeah, Mike, what's his name? I Mick think it was
0: Mike. Mick Riva.
1: Yeah, Mick or Rick or something. Mm-hmm. Mick Riva. Yeah. Um, Elvis. Let's and it Elvis. says, <laughs> I was thinking like Mick Jagger. Yeah, oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. um so there's a description here they're at this concert and it says that night the air in la was cooler than i had anticipated i was wearing capri pants and a short-sleeved sweater i had just gotten bangs and had started sweeping them to the side celia had on a blue shift dress and flats Harry, dapper as ever was wearing slacks and a short-sleeved oxford shirt he held a uh, camel-colored knit Cardigan with oversized button in his hand, ready for any of us who were too cold, and that's it. That's all <laughs> the description we get. Yeah, it's just yeah. what they're wearing. There's no description of like we know that the the air is cool uh, <laughs> in L.A. Right, and that's it. I don't know whether like I mean I guess like it's an outdoor concert, but is it is it an outdoor concert? Is it that they were just like possibly cold on the way into the concert? Are like i'm I just I can't picture the scene, and I'm like, why why did you include those the description of the clothes because the clothes don't matter later th- in the chapter yeah. or later at all? So we raised what's...
0: this in the front half too as just kind yeah. of a neutral I wouldn't say a concern, but just sort of a thing we didn't respond to. The only I mean, it's so blatant in that quote, though, but the only thing it's functionally doing for me is reminding me that Harry is a kind, thoughtful person because his he brings extra like the whole function of his clothes is that he brought extra for others. You know, he's considerate. And so, yeah, it's a little snippet of characterization, I suppose. But otherwise, yeah, I don't like the mentioning her bangs haircut and the capri pants. Again, there's probably someone who reads this with a lot of background knowledge about fashion history who reads that and can maybe maybe there's some inference to pull from that that just relies on background knowledge that I don't have perhaps you don't have because yeah I so much of the fashion just made my eyes glaze over and it she always looked good so I guess you know like what at some point it's just repetition of yep she looked good in black and then in green and then this cut and it's like she just always looked great okay (laughs) yep she's beautiful and glamorous (laughs) like moving on to the next detail and so yeah it didn't do a lot for me either the in fact the one scene that stood out to me in terms of looks or beauty that I that really did immerse me in the moment and I felt the kind of The harsh reality of it was when she woke up with Max, her husband, and he was so disappointed and she felt a little disheveled, I think, because the previous night they'd been making love. And then she felt really comfortable and like wanted to wake up, you know, feeling more herself, more natural, less put less like she's putting on a show. And then, of course, the tragedy of realizing that he only wants the show and he doesn't you know, he's not interested in waking up to her next to her in a disheveled hopefully comfortable state he just wanted the the being seen in public going to do fancy things version you know the the public right. facing and that moment i felt that one i probably made me feel the most outright i guess emotional of the whole story i just felt like that was such a small little tragedy for someone who was finally seeking some kind of final conclusion in her life or some, some relationship to make her comfortable. Um, let's jump right. to the imaginary essays here. We like to use these as an analytical tool in the book club episodes. This is when we are going to give each other a prompt to respond to. No, we don't actually write the essays. We just use these as a fun way to kind of plan out some thoughts and maybe outline some of our ideas from the text. It also gives us a lens, obviously, through which we can analyze the story. I will pose your essay to you first, Amanda, if you are ready. I'm ready. Prepared, okay. And I, we, as usual, we will grade these on a bell curve, etc. <laughs> very harshly. <laughs> Got the rubric up here on the screen, so prepare yourself. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> when I first – when or sorry, let me phrase this correctly. When you first selected the novel and I did my cursory Googling about it, I admit that my brief skims and scans of the internet mostly mentioned that it was Hollywood glamour story I quite literally didn't know about the LGBTQ plus element of it at all until we got you know 100 pages in or what have you or I think you told me when you told me why you picked it you mentioned that and I thought okay I didn't notice that online but yeah and so anyway to me the the, when I went into the novel I was thinking mostly okay what is this going to tell me about early Hollywood fame and glamour so that that essentially is my question to you. You, what does the novel teach us about celebrity and wealth or even Hollywood and movie making if you want to take it that direction but what do you think the novel has to say about those topics
1: um so I broke it down into the two specifically so celebrity yeah. and yeah. wealth um where uh Evelyn wealth is almost like a secondhand thing for her where it's like it comes with the celebrity what she really wants is the celebrity the security and the the power that comes with that, the empower, the personal empowerment of having that. So Mm -hmm. um, we'll talk a little, I'll talk about uh, celebrity first, because what I saw was a discussion of celebrity in this book was uh, directly related to the importance of controlling the narrative, which was a motif that I had picked up on on the previous episode um, that where we discussed this book. And the the power of celebrity celebrity just means that hey people know who you are right but in order for her to maintain her job and to maintain her influence in the in Hollywood was that she had to control the narrative that she was feeding to uh, the media. So first we see that um, when she signs on with sunset um, sunset studios at the very beginning, they are the ones that control the narrative and the way that they do that is they change her identity. So they um, change her hair. They change her clothes. Right. They change her accent. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. They give her a vocal coach and stuff. And, um, and they give her a whole new background history, right? So they change her to be this new person and they also like make her lose six pounds. And with the clothes, mm-hmm. they, they give her a, a whole new persona where she's uh, demure. She's like a sex pot, but not uh, not realizing that she's sexy, right? So they mm-hmm. style her clothes to be like revealing, but in a way that's like also chaste it's so Like, oh, oops, my, my cleavage just fell out of this shirt a little bit. Oh, excuse me. Like, just that kind of, like, fake modesty, almost, in that way. Um, so that was how they controlled her identity, thereby controlling the narrative. Once she leaves Sunset Studios, because Don Adler forced her out
0: <laughs> right, after right. their
1: divorce... Um, she was able to control her image, and what she did is that she fed the public and the media the image of being a sex pot. She was like, You know, I'm done with that whole innocence thing, the naive thing, and I'm just gonna go as like full on sex pot and um, get roles based on that. Which, if you like look at the, the roles that she typically plays, except for Joe in Little Women which she felt like i guess was her like first legitimate role um other than that that was like during sunset studios after that she plays mostly just sexy roles until she gets older and then she turns into like a mom and stuff like that um Mm -hmm. which is also because as women age we're not seen as like the sex pots anymore but that's a whole different discussion um So she's able to control the narrative in that way, and she still has to hide her true identity. That's like the big thing about, I think, the celebrity status is that you have to feed constantly this image of yourself that is not your true self. Um, And for multiple reasons. For her, the reason being that if she revealed that she is bisexual and that she is in love with Celia, then not... That would completely change her working life, right? She wouldn't get the roles that she would want. She could possibly be um, uh, legally censured in some ways, and she would um, lose the celebrity, the wealth, the lifestyle, all of that. So she had to continue denying her identity and controlling not just her actions but also her emotions.
0: Right, Um yeah
1: in order to maintain that lifestyle, which is pretty interesting. And, and that's why we see her repeat each time that she actually has an emotional reaction. She calls it the luxury of panic because it is a luxury for her because she's had to be so controlled, which is funny, because she has to control herself. She can never really let herself be herself in order to control outside forces that could potentially affect her life severely and
0: at the end it's doesn't she one of her final reflections right is you i was yeah. never evelyn hugo you know i you can thank yeah. me for inventing in my entire life you know for your pleasure and consumption
1: yeah um she says Remind them, and this is from page 358, and it's, in mm-hmm. it's chapter 63, I think. Um, better yet, remind them that Eve- Evelyn Hugo never existed. She was a person I made up for them so that they would love me. Tell them that I was confused for a very long time about what love was. Tell them that I understand it now, and I don't need their love anymore. Tell them Evelyn Hugo says goodbye. And um, that was the end of their interview, basically. But yeah, so that's... The the idea of celebrity is just a denial of who you are as an actual person and a denial of, like, your private emotions and your private life. and Just not having that the freedom, I guess, to be yourself in a lot of ways. Um, Which I think we also see, actually, with, like, even now, with current celebrity status, right? Like, when you watch the Kardashians, you're just like, Okay, how much of this is actually fake, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and And it's a question for any time that we see celebrities. And any time that a celebrity is real, like if they lash out in public, if they show anger, everybody is like, oh my gosh, look at that. They're such a monster. How could they be like that? Not understanding the stresses of like being in the public eye constantly.
0: Yeah, um, yeah.
1: And the same thing with wealth. She uh, Evelyn made the comment that rich people should be satisfied with their money, but like they're always seeking more money. And it's the same thing with celebrity status, right? You should be happy that like, you know, people like you, they adore you, they they love you and put you on a pedestal, but you're always seeking more and more and you're always protecting what you have.
0: Right. Um, right.
1: And so I think that in the end, you know, Evelyn tells Monique that none of that actually matters and the message that i i got overall about like celebrity status, wealth and all that stuff is is that um ultimately you have to sacrifice a whole lot and what you see when people have that is not who they actually are.
0: Yeah. So I think the wealth aspect is something that the text ducked and dodged. I I yeah, don't think it sure. reconciled with that in a way that it should have in fact there are of course paragraphs toward the end about well they did donate a lot of their money to glad and they you know it's they sprinkled it it's, right. it's i think that to me read as a, a, an attempted escape from condemning some of the like a lot of the conflicts in the middle of this book could have been resolved by them saying oh we have enough money that we literally never have to do anything again in our entire lives we can just stop i mean and i guess that's where the egotism creeps in or there are sort of self perceptions as famous people or stars that they don't want to stop i think at some point harry says something like that or he doesn't like the idea of retirement because he you know he working gives him life, gives him passion, kind of gives him fuel, which I respect that part of it, but you got to have a bit more of a creative imagination, right? If you're, if you have enough money to live for the rest of your life with, you know, without blowing it on 20 houses or boats or whatever, then just be be more creative about how to spend your time, set up some organizations, volunteer more, do like, you know, just be productive in a different way. It just, that just reeks to me of lack of imagination and egotism,
1: but yeah that's that's the i i think why I, for wealth i was like eh wealth we don't see a whole lot of she makes the comment that they have like big mansions and stuff and and mm-hmm. that like yeah. they still get she finds it funny that as a celebrity she gets free things even though she has the money to pay for them mm-hmm. yeah um, but she still doesn't pay for them
0: <laughs> right right. she
1: accepts the free things right so um and it's just uh, yeah i didn't really get a whole cent a whole lot of like understanding of like the the wealth aspect of her life except to say that she had a comfortable life
0: i think the novel explores celebrity the, the mindset of celebrities and the pressures put upon them pretty pretty well but in terms of just i think it portrays the mindset of the wealthy either not much at all or in a really simplistic way that just felt kind of limp to me but yes i think it it's a secondary concern to the book It's almost like her becoming super wealthy is tangential to everything else going on, which, yeah, I mean, that's one way to look at the story. So, you know, and then essay for me, Amanda, are you ready?
1: I am ready. So um, although this novel is predominantly a story of Evelyn Hugo, it is framed by Monique Grant's narrative as well. So how is that frame narrative, the narrative of Monique Grant? How could we argue that that is actually a Bildungsroman or a coming of age story for Monique?
0: Yes, the tough thing here with this essay for me is that I don't, I couldn't, I wasn't being creative enough in my mind, or maybe I don't have the creativity enough to imagine an alternate reading to this. It, it is explicitly a growing up story where she takes lessons from Evelyn's life and then applies them to her own to better her life. And that even includes you know, Evelyn's one of her final messages in the story is about how, you know, again, no one's good or bad. That's all bullshit where, you know, everyone's complex and there's no, I think the the Hollywood cliche way that it frames it in is if you say that you're unoriginal, which is like the most Hollywood esque cliched burn of all time, I guess by her, but that's, yeah, essentially that if you think there's only good or bad people, you're, uh, oh, you're unoriginal, What an unoriginal way to look at the world. And so I, she literally takes her confidence and then get makes career moves that are positive. She's going to write this book. She got a promotion at work. She feels comfortable in her divorce and is confident that she can go find something more meaningful, a better type of love for herself. And so those things are managed in her life explicitly. So I, I don't know. It's a tough question because I would have a hard time reading this Bill Dung's Roman in any other way. I think, though, I have some critiques of this kind of format or structure the first yeah. most obvious one being that because we meet monique essentially in Medea's res in her life at a kind of crossroads we're not shown a lot of how that happened or what that meant. We're just meant to accept it, just accept it. <laughs> so, in, for example, David is not a character in this story. He he appears, he is a person, but he's not a character. He doesn't have development. We I don't know anything about him. I don't know complexities about him, the ins and outs, the, the good, the bad, however you want to frame it. He has no depth. He just shows up. It's just a it's a sounding board for her to advance her emotional life. Her career is not a conflict either. I mean, I get that. In the very first chapter on page 14, we are meant to see kind of what's going on at work, that she's in a bit of a rut, kind of a stalemate with her boss. and But everything you need to know in that regard is on page 14. If she didn't show up again in the entire book, if none of the other interjections showed up, I would feel probably exactly the same, I think. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a relatively tidy way that this conclusion plays out. I pulled a quote here from 286, and it says, It's that quote from David. you know, I hope some, you find someone complete. And then she thinks like Celia, thank you. I say, I hope you find it too. David smiles in a way that is more of a frown. And then he leaves when you end a marriage, you're supposed to lose sleep over it. Aren't you? But I don't, I sleep free. And that's essentially, that's how this story wants to wrap up the frame. It wants it to be tidy. I don't think it wants it, it, despite the incredible mess that the final twist is, I think constructive in a narrative, constructive sense. I don't think it actually creates much emotional mess at all, because, hey, here's a note affirming everything you already knew about your father in a, in a true depth of love way. And so that's OK. You know, it would have been a completely other thing if, for example, that note didn't exist and she wasn't allowed that resolution. And instead, Evelyn just said, Yeah, he was killed and he was having an affair, and that's the closure you get, which is no – you just get this mess of closure. Instead, here's a tidy little note that will – yes, of course, this isn't ideal. My bad. I shouldn't have framed this man for for an accident, and instead he was was involved in manslaughter. Oops. But, yeah, and so without that, I think it would be a different reading of the ending. It would be a messier one. I think – Yeah, that that plot twist is flimsy to me. I think that it ends the frame that way, leads me to my one simplistic reading, but I don't know. I couldn't help but wonder if the narrative kind of earned Monique as a changed person. My opinion is 100% no, because I never found her character that interesting or dynamic in the first place. I didn't really... She just seemed a bit cliche, riddled, and kind of flat to me, but clearly the story wants us to know that she changed. And clearly the story wants us to know that she, I believe her life is better. She'll be more financially secure. Her relationship with her mom is good. She's got this book deal, all that stuff. But I, the way I was interpreting it, the frame at the end, it was just one more manipulative chess move by Evelyn to me that again, made me feel that she's a bit more of a villain than this novel perhaps even wanted her to be. But you know the novel owns that Evelyn is complex and compromised, and her morals and ethics are a bit shaky, and she do- she does things that hurt, that hurt people and knows it. So I don't I don't think the book wants us to love Evelyn. I think the book expects us to love her at the end because she's so honest and so compromised and so human. But I think that that frame at the end again tipped her scales to me into more of the villainous, cruel, devil, something more caricature in a way. I don't know, but. And so, to me, I know how the frame, I think, was meant to make me feel at the end. I don't know if it accomplished that for me, but it it did raise more questions for me about Evelyn, which I appreciated because, as we've said a couple times now, she's really the reason to come to this story. She's the reason I think the story is really interesting, intricate, and great. And so, if if we would consider it that. But yeah, my reading on the frame all that said is is a bit simplistic like I think it's a Monique growth story I, which can be read pretty unambiguously you know when when she's quoting from Evelyn's life story to justify new things in her life I don't know how else I could read that <laughs> you know I don't it's pretty much like hey I'm using this experience of, of this woman to catapult myself and be more confident and so
1: yeah I, I think that's a great point that there's like there's not a whole lot of depth and there's not a, a a lot of like leeway as far as how you can interpret Monique and her life. It's very much like it's railroady, right? Like you, you already know what's going to happen with Monique from like just reading (laughs) Evelyn's story. Right. Mm -hmm. So you already know everything that's going to happen. Even like with the twist, with that final, with the letter afterwards, you're like, okay, well, she's like going to, obviously like eventually forgive her that's there's no real conflict there because we already know how Monique is gonna react because she's just such a a non-complex character yeah yeah
0: yeah and there was there was the chapter when she felt furious at the revelation and there was some writing in there that I thought was was pretty good I guess in terms of Response and how she processed it, but it all just evolved into another long dialogue, another long conversation where they hash out the issues really explicitly and it becomes another tete a tete between characters. I think all of that structure just bleeds into that as well, which I think undercut that moment a bit for me, maybe. It's just, it's going to turn into another kind of Evelyn debating things with her and assuaging her guilt in that way. And anyway, yeah, I, I enjoyed, I guess, a final thought on the frame. I enjoyed in the end what it lended to Evelyn's character, even if it maybe pushed her almost over the top for me in terms of a Mm -hmm. kind of a compromised person. But the Monique, taking it from the Monique aspect or the Monique end, I yeah, I felt unmoved by it, frankly. But it did, it it gave Evelyn one final really kind of insane manipulative thing that she did, (laughs) which is, I don't know. Yeah, that, that to me added a certain reading and an intensity to it at the end. Any final thoughts on the frame or Monique's development? Nope. Excellent. Well, let's move outside of the text. We like to end the book club episodes with whatever we've discussed by doing two things. One, we're going to do the lost pages, and we'll actually start here. This is when we pick a topic, a character, a conflict, or some element of the story that we felt deserved more elaboration or that we wished could have been explored more, but was not. Um, Amanda, why don't you go ahead with what your lost pages are for this book?
1: Sure. Um, her relationships with her husbands are pretty well explored. Um, I mean, each... Like, not chapter, but each section is based on, is named after a husband with with an adjective before it, right? Or two. Um, but with Robert, her final husband, who was Celia's brother, I don't really, like, get much of him. He's nice, and he develops a great relationship with Connor, who, even though Evelyn says is, like, super important in her life, it, we don't also see a whole lot of her. Um so i was just like i would like to read more about what her life was like after celia died what was her life because after celia died it's like the narrative pretty much ended really abruptly it did. um there was like a statement that connor died there was a statement mm-hmm. that robert died there was a statement that before he died robert helped celia get a job or not celia um connor get a job like it's <laughs> everything just happens really quickly afterwards and you're just like, bam, 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 event, event, event. And there's no discussion of what her life was like after Celia. And I, I would be interested in seeing what, what that would be like. What was their relationship like even for
0: sure? I almost feel like that is the ambition of an entirely different book. Not that this book needs a sequel. I don't even mean that, but I mean, when you're constructing a novel, I have to imagine in your planning stages, you know, thematic ideas and stuff, planning a book about someone who had lived a, kind of roller coaster romance with someone and then what is it once that's over it's sort of when the greatest thing in your life the meaning for your life is gone what now that's just like a fundamentally different question for a fundamentally different book but I agree I yeah I think that's just an emotional state that this book is did not want to plumb the depths of. Yeah. I don't. I don't think this book had any interest in that. It's. It was yeah. about them together, them dealing with it in in person, and then you know the passion, the love of it all. I think, but right. no, completely. That's that is. A, I think a character of Evelyn's complexity. Yeah, the the way it ends kind of flatly in that way. She kind of just fades away, to, and it seems like her whole life becomes a quiet, kind of muted version of what it was. Is. Maybe didn't feel but you know, Amanda, come on, she pulls off an all time insane manipulation at the end and then commits suicide. I mean, what do you want something more <laughs> dramatic than that? <laughs> You're right. It's it's Greek it's Greek <laughs> tragedy esque or something, I don't know. And as the book made sure to point out, it was her breasts that were her undoing. Oh my god. Yeah. Who saw that coming? <laughs> <laughs> Who knew from their description throughout the story that 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 could be her undoing. What is, is that a symbol? Should we be reading that as a symbol, symbolic moment?
1: Hmm. Loss of, of her power. Yeah. Or, the source of her power.
0: Well, I think, I think the book goes so far as to say that though, which is, I, you know, I don't need, I don't like when books interpret things for me. That feels annoying to me, but I think the I think the line <laughs> in there was something like, isn't it ironic that the thing that got me what I wanted, took it away or, you know what I, I think it yeah. says, that. I think there's a line like that in there, which he, eh, not for me. Um, My Lost Pages are pretty simple. I said this in part one. I came into this book really hoping to learn more about Hollywood history. I wanted more things from on set. I wanted a bit more. Now, we do get a lot of sense of the backroom dealing and some of the producers, manipulators, financiers, the people who are the money managers, the folks who are trying to plot out these careers and make stars, make money. And there's a good amount of that, though. Maybe not as much as even I would have wanted, but... The one sex scene, or sex scene, sorry, it is an intimate sex scene, that's what I've written down, but the one scene on set that we really get on 263 in Max's film... I was into the writing in that. I, f- I felt like her kind of vamping herself up, trying to trigger some memories with Don because it was a scene with Don and the emotional complexity of wanting to be engaged in it. And then, but also, and so give a great performance, but then also how she immediately had to pull away and, and be alone and how it kind of brings yeah. up. I thought that was all pretty fascinating. The the lines between her, the fake. I feel like if you're going to explore the lines of celebrity between fake and real, nothing more potent than the work they do which is being fake that's the whole job you know what I mean so I think how that bled into her real life was fascinating obviously and made her complex but I just wanted more movie stuff I don't know I we were told about the receptions there's the Oscar speeches but not a lot of that is shown it's all pretty brief it all comes and goes pretty quickly so I just wanted more about the movies frankly I don't and I don't even have a personal interest in the history of Hollywood that's a whole there's like a whole community around that culture that history that time I don't really care too much about it i you know i think it's a little interesting but i i just wanted more of that out of the book and because the snippets we got i thought were i don't know some of the better moments of writing
1: right like instead of the the descriptions of the clothes if we had descriptions of those things the, the movie process and the um the interactions with a director more and stuff like that. You know, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that would be a lot more interesting for sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Just more of those technicalities I think would have, I don't know, would have engaged me more. It, this this is a book that just moves from conversation to conversation, though. Kind of like interpersonal development all the way through. That's the, that is the train of the plot here in this one. Okay, let's end with critical assistance. This is when we close out the book clubs with going to some outside sources. We like to usually pull from book reviews or reactions to the text, something that we can find online and a, a little bit of light research. I will say... I didn't our our go to book reviews sectors, right? The New Yorker, the New York Times book review and the New York review of books or even I think I've used the Paris review of books before, too. But those kind of big literary hitters uh, silent on this one. Not a lot I could (laughs) find. Instead, it was a lot more informal blogs, things hosted, personal blogs or websites about, you know, literary websites, book recommendation websites, that kind of thing. And so that's what I pulled. I pulled from something like that. Amanda, do you want to begin, though? What, what did you pull for outside critical assistance here?
1: Um, same. So I, I couldn't really find um, any articles written uh, from our, our usual sources, but um, I pulled from uh, Medium.com. There is um, – Claire and Millie from medium.com wrote about it, and and they said, I just pulled a couple of quotes, um, don't be fooled like myself, this book is entirely fictitious, but written with such intricate detail that I googled more than once just to check whether Miss Hugo was real or not. So I thought it was interesting that she was saying intricate detail because, Uh, There's a very much a distinction here. She says detail, as in, I think, specifically the details of Miss Hugo, the detail of the characterization, not necessarily the details of, obviously, the descriptions of the setting and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, Um, I agree. And and I think that Miss Hugo, yeah, I think it's a compliment because um, Evelyn Hugo, the character, was written really well to make her seem until the end for you, at least um, very human and very realistic. There's just so complex and, um, and not, um, not flat. She's not just, you know, one way she changes over the course of the novel. She's, she's very realistic. Um, And so, yes, I think that I also looked it up and to see like, okay, well, who did she base this on? Because obviously she's based this on somebody and she actually based it on Elizabeth Taylor and Ava Gardner. Um, is Evelyn's uh, personality and also like the history and stuff, some of the history. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I also pulled another quote with so many twists and turns and sordid secrets revealed along the way, I couldn't help but just keep reading. I became so attached to these multifaceted characters and just how raw they were that I couldn't help but shed a tear from time to time. And here again is the, the emotional investment into the characters, which is the real draw of this novel yes um the many twists and turns and sorted secrets okay yeah there are sorted secrets there's a couple of twists but like i i feel like not not overly much this for me was not meant to have a whole bunch of like and ta-da and suddenly there's this thing but it was yeah. more of for me like a psychological read where you can really delve into one person's mindset um according to the the um, the life that she is leading and the times that she's living in. It. I
0: agree. So. Aren't outright the only two things that the that the plot and the story really frames as twists until that climax, until the ending with Monique. Are one when we it's revealed that Don abuses her because that's played at the very end of a chapter and then it's like oh man this is about to change everything because the twist of that is of course everything up to then had been her first true love so there's that right. I guess that's kind of a twist but then after that it's unravelled and explored pretty at a pretty slow pace I would say there's a lot of the scenes about that and she a lot of the Stockholm syndrome that kind of sets in with her or whatever there's got to be a better term than that that's for a more specific case but anyway yeah. the sort of but you know that that mentality. And so that was one. And then I guess the second one would be about Celia being a lesbian and then them. But after that, I guess it is a revelation that also unwinds pretty slowly. Like they they I feel like they find time in the narrative to to explore how they fall in with each other, how their relationship develops. I don't I didn't feel like there were any other twists, though. Those were the only two ones that felt really abrupt and twist like to me.
1: Yeah. Well, and and then the uh, the revelation that Harry's boyfriend was.
0: No, that's Monique. what I meant. Except for the Monique thing at the end, but yeah, that yeah. that cli- yeah. that whole climax, the the letter, the yes, that whole thing is like it's such a M Night Shyamalan style, a really yeah. intense <laughs> twist at the end. That's
1: yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah. There's not a whole bunch of twists. I didn't in, in, no. in it. it is
0: raw. I, that that word I think is a pretty fitting one. I I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I sure. Agree. It's a pretty emotionally open. Yep. Cool. Um, that was it for, from
1: Claire. Excellent.
0: Enough. I pulled some quotes from a student newspaper. Shout-outs to all the university students out there. Let's see if we can get a foothold in that audience. Pretty sure nice. all, of our, all of our listeners are you know older than that. But this is from the University of Houston. It is published. It was published six days ago from this recording, by the way, which I thought oh, was wow. pretty wild, uh, by Sydney Rose for The Cougar, which is the student university newspaper at the University of Houston. So shout-outs to you, Sydney Rose. Um, couple quotes. It is not hard... Or, sorry, it is hard not to fall in love with Taylor Jenkins Reid's multidimensional characters, even have Evelyn Hugo herself, who acknowledges her flaws before anyone else can... I, the only word of that quote that I, I bristled at was the word even. It, it should be especially, right? It's like right. Evelyn Hugo isn't meant to be an exception to the I want you to like these complex characters. She is the reason you would read this book. She is the one that the book tries so hard to get you invested in and to get you to kind of come to grips with her multifaceted, compromised human human flaws. So I, I just read that and I was like, well, wait, no. I, the whole book, I think, is setting her up so well to be if not admired or respected just understood and kind of anyway that that one word i was just like ah that's not i didn't i felt the opposite anyway another quick quote one thing reed does well is striking emotion in scenes that require it one moment the reading or sorry the reader can be reading about a scene set happily at a wedding then the last paragraph before the chapter ends will give you whiplash as the tone shifts to something more depressive i i got the sense that was when harry was revealed to abuse her because that is right. that's a uh, when Don or sorry down. Don yeah yeah my bad um yes because that's a one sentence flip at the end so yeah point taken I think the other tonal shifts and the kind of breakneck pace of this the way it jumps years and years in time I don't think I love that as much I almost would have preferred if maybe the jump between husbands was when we jumped in time but it felt like there were middle parts of sections or husbands where we jumped a lot and it could be a bit jarring so I don't. I don't know if I love the tonal shifts. I also think, I think it maintained, especially when Evelyn was narrating her narrative voice. I think the tone of it, the kind of unrepentant, raw tone, I guess I'll borrow that word now, to mm. me kind of stayed consistent. I don't know if the tone shifted, you know, I, I think the topic shifted, right? In that case, you went from her being really raw and open about falling in love for the first time, being on this high, but then she does the same she's also raw and open about being abused so it's right. i think it's more of the topic and the ebbs and flows of her life shift I, don't, I think the tone i felt pretty consistent by i guess the exception would be the frame which kind of had its own yeah i don't know kind of drab tone i'm not really sure maybe that's me being too harsh
1: yeah it's definitely less vibrant in a lot of ways there's yeah, not yeah. a whole lot of action
0: i agree final quote i'm going to read Coming from a reading slump and hopping right into the pages of this novel, I was able to read the entire thing in one sitting. The chapters really do begin to flow as you read and get lost in each scene, seeming as though you really are there in that time period with those characters. A book like The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo is one that anyone can fall in love with if given the chance. A couple quotes to talk through there. I, the one sitting thing to me, I, this didn't grip me that much, but I read the second half in one sitting to be fair yesterday, Sunday, mm-hmm. yesterday I sat down and was like, I need to finally get through this. And yeah, it was, it's a breezy read. And so finished the second half in one I, that part. Yeah. It's, it's easy to get into a flow with, I think again, because it is dominated by conversation. It's often just every scene becomes characters debating something, trying to hash something out there. There's so little yeah. other things to get lost in. So the the part of the quote then that I take a little issue with is the getting lost in the time period. I don't know some of the, I mean, I get that the things that they're talking through, a lot of the conflicts are bred from their time period restrictions on, on gay rights and things like that come up, but I'm not sure if those references were stripped away and we just had these conversations. I think that the things this book is interested in are way less the setting and much more the interpersonal compromises and the kind of emotions and the relationships of people over long periods of time. So I felt like I was getting lost in the character debates and the things going on with their emotions motivations i less so the setting again i i think when i remember this book i'm not going to remember i learned and felt like i was in old hollywood i just don't feel that way about this book i I don't think there was enough about living in la feeling and feeling like you're in that setting being there being on set or in those back rooms like that stuff is present but it's very fleeting in the book so i don't feel like i disappeared into a time period at all here with this one
1: I agree. There, there's not enough description of the setting itself to kind of lend, lend importance or significance yeah. as much. Uh, but there is. I mean, this is a very dialogue-heavy book. Just, yeah. I mean, yeah. every page, right? Um, which is not to say that it's a bad thing. Like, I mean, it definitely moves things along sure. very quickly, and it's meant to be a psychological read. Um, but yeah, the the comment that you get lost in the setting, uh, I think that the setting yeah. is. There's like with the the LGBTQ rights, a discussion in the background. I think that it's interesting, but I definitely didn't feel like that was at the forefront of this novel. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I can't. I'm not going to remember one movie reference from this except the, the was it something in train the Ma- first max film
1: uh, boot in train yeah, mostly whatever. because
0: it mentioned the french new wave which is a classic film school when i took my one film class we had to study that time period it's just a that's like an academic y- you would have studied this kind of reference but it's not like they dwelt on that either it's not like she talked about how the philosophy of making a film was different and we shot it differently and oh i had to do all these scenes and they the way i had to do my emo like it doesn't it doesn't get into filmmaking really at all in this book yeah. so i just yeah I, i'll remember the rest. But otherwise I don't remember. It's, it's just all about their relationships. It's just such an interpersonal relationships tale. I don't, it, I, I would not sell this book to someone and we'll get to this in the book recommendation when we do that. I don't think I would pitch this to someone at all about, do you love Hollywood? This is for you. Right. It's, do you want an intricate character story about this compromised person in love with, with many people for many reasons? And so anyway, Okay. Any final thoughts on The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid? Uh, nope, I'm good. Okay. Yeah, I think I do think we've said it all, and we'll say even more when we do the book recommendation later. couple outro notes, then. We are, again, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Follow our social media feeds at the Lightly Literary Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and obviously rate and review us, recommend us. Tell your friends and family, people. We've got other book clubs and book reviews, or book recommendations, rather, coming up. The next three books we'll be covering on the pod in order are *The Bluest Eye* by Toni Morrison, *Native*—no, not *Native Son*, *Native Speaker*.
1: Yeah, *Native Speaker*. There
0: we go. Sorry. I, no, no, that was me. I think who did that? I don't. I don't know who typed, but I saw that and I thought *Native Son* is by not. Oh, who wrote *Native Son*? What a book.
1: Um. It was Richard Wright. Yeah, there
0: we go. Okay, yeah, I was—I remember reading that novel really vividly. I just couldn't remember who wrote it. Anyway, that's on it. Native Speaker by Chang-Rae Lee. There we go. And then Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton. So those are the next three books that we'll be covering in order. We hope you join us for any or all of those episodes. And as always, folks, we'll see you between the pages.